Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. In this episode, we're pleased to be joined by our first repeat guest, uh, the venerable Dr. Brent Strawn. <laughs> he, will be, he walked us through the prologue of Job uh, in our last season, and we've invited uh, Brent to orient us on our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. Brent Strawn is D. Moody Smith Distinguished Professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School. And regular listeners of the Two Testaments may notice that that's different from our introduction last season with Brent. So the distinguished is new in his title. Maybe that has something to do with appearing on the Two Testaments. I'm not sure. I, I, I suspect that it was not a coincidence. Um, I like to say about that, that distinguished sounds very pretentious, doesn't it? Uh, that being said, I'm happy to accept. <laughs> now, uh, Brent is the author of several books, including two that just came out this past year. And last time when we were with him, we talked about how it was possible that he could write as much as he did. And he suggested he might have a clone somewhere. So we'll figure that out. But um, <laughs> these two books that have come out in the last year are Lies My Preacher Told Me, An Honest Look at the Old Testament. That's Westminster John Knox. And Honest to God Preaching, Talking Sin, Suffering, and Violence, which is with Fortress Press. And one of the reasons that we thought of him for this series on Deuteronomy is that he has also edited the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and Law with Oxford University Press, which received the 2016 Dartmouth Medal from the American Library Association for most outstanding reference work. And I can only imagine what the after party was like after that awards ceremony. <laughs> they did um, literally send a medal. They did literally oh, send wow. a medal. I have a medal. I wow. try to wear it on high occasions. My wife doesn't really. <laughs> um, but the main reason, actually, that I wanted to start this journey through Deuteronomy with Brent is that while teaching through his book, The Old Testament is Dying, which I talked about a little bit last time we had him on, one of my favorite books to teach uh, with students, uh, it was through reading that book that I was convinced that we really should do Deuteronomy next. And, and that's because in this book, quoting from Gordon McConville, Strawn observes that wherever one goes in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is always somehow there. So you can't understand the Old Testament without understanding Deuteronomy. In fact, Strawn argues that Deuteronomy provides a framework for saving the Old Testament. And I think that's a good place for us to start our conversation, Brent. Uh, why does the Old Testament need saving and how could Deuteronomy help us save it? Oh, well, um, thanks first for having me back. It's always nice to be a repeat offender, um, or I mean guest and re repeat <laughs> guest on a podcast. So, uh, honored to be invited back and uh, I see that you have some really great people, uh, on the docket. So I'm, I'm honored to be included among them. Um, but to your question, Will, I think the issue, uh, for me in that book was to kind of note at least 
anecdotally, but also somewhat empirically and then somewhat semi-empirically through a course of tests, the, the decline of the Old Testament in many circles. I, I, you know, tried to be circumspect about how much I could really gauge world Christianity. And the answer to that is I can't, but I can gauge certain pockets of North American Christianity and also make some observations about at least again, anecdotes from what I know of, um, of, uh, Christianity outside North America. And the Old Testament is, uh, in dire straits and it's not a new phenomenon. It's really been that way for a long time and for more than one reason. And so the decline of the Old Testament is just basically, um, a lack of familiarity with it, a lack of interest in it, uh, and therefore, uh, a decided absence of it in uh, Christian faith and practice. And that includes individual Christian faith and practice, also corporate um, worship and so on and so forth. Things in Judaism might be slightly different, but I don't think they're entirely different in a, in every case, as the noted Jewish scholar Tikva Freimerkinski has, has uh, observed. So that's kind of in a nutshell, I think, the decline of the Old Testament. And, um, and Deuteronomy might just be one instance of that. And insofar as it participates in, in the Torah and the law and the Pentateuch, not usually Christian's favorite books uh, to go to first and foremost. But how could Deuteronomy help us save the Old Testament? What kind of guidance would it provide us for that? Well, in the, in the book that you mentioned, I, I zeroed in on the idea that when you think hard about Deuteronomy, it really does present us with a model of second language acquisition, the importance of language training and all that. And, the, and that linguistic analogy is what I use in the book, that the Bible is like a language and therefore you have to learn it, learn how to speak it. Otherwise it will die and it can die quite quickly. And the um, things like the occasion of, of Deuteronomy, um, the strategies of teaching that are observable in Deuteronomy, and the effects of Deuteronomy, among other things, these, these three things at least are instances of how that sort of maps quite nicely onto saving a dying language. So, for instance, the occasion of Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die. He's not going to be there. He's he's sort of the fluent speaker who knew God face to face and spoke to God as if to a friend and so on and so forth. And he, but he's, he's dying. Someone else needs to be able to speak the language. So he's at pains to teach this language. The, the strategies that are used by, by Moses and the, the mosaic voice in Deuteronomy, uh, traffic and the kinds of things that are so important in language acquisition, like repetition. Uh, and then we can see as we kind of broaden our view, we can see how the Deuteronomic language instruction, if we call it that, really took. And that's why I think McConville's quote that you read, Will, is so right, that wherever one goes, Deuteronomy is somehow always there. It makes its presence felt in the so-called Deuteromistic history from Joshua through Kings. It makes its presence felt in Jeremiah. It makes its presence felt even when people are resisting it or, or challenging it, as perhaps in Job. Um, I think it's present in the epistles of John, First John particularly. Um, it's just sort of there. And then also it's, it's received uh, in Joshua, as Joshua kind of takes up the mantle. It's received by Josiah as Josiah takes up the mantle. It's received in the in the book of Maccabees where we hear about the the woman with the martyred sons and how how the song of Moses was taught to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then finally even in the book of Revelation where the the saints sing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. So it shows that this kind of functionality of Deuteronomy it was very effective. Mm-hmm. 
Now, to pick up on the metaphor of death or dying, um, you know, when you have been wrestling with interpreting the book of Deuteronomy, okay, uh, what have you found most difficult or what has nearly killed you as you have <laughs> been wrestling with the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, well, I think um, that when you put it that way, maybe maybe uh, maybe three or so things, um, maybe now two, maybe the third one is, has left left the building. But one, I think, is for sure in terms of um, the modern context and thinking about modern religious experience, at least for Christians and Protestant Christians, is the problem of law, right? I mean, just the problem of law in general, uh, getting people to like law, getting people to be excited about law. So that, that's one thing. Um, a second piece of it is the larger covenantal sort of structure and theology of Deuteronomy, which at least on the surface seems kind of simplistic to us. You know, you do good things and you'll be blessed. You do bad things, you get cursed. You know, you do all the words of uh, the Lord in the book of the Torah and, you know, you'll probably have a great harvest. But if you don't, you're off to Babylon. You know, it's kind of, it seems very simple um, in terms of the moral calculus. And, you know, we just have seen too much on Netflix to, to, to buy into that simplicity. <laughs> we, we like our heroes and anti-heroes and we like our comedies dark and all the rest. You know, we, we know about moral complexity. So for a lot of people, Deuteronomy on a facile look looks facile. I don't think it's facile, but it looks that way. And I think the third thing, it did come back to me, actually it was the first thing. It wasn't the thing I forgot. It was the second thing I forgot. If you're tracking that at home, good <laughs> <for you. laughs> is, uh, is the stuff about the conquest, right? The, let's mm. be honest. The stuff about the conquest, particularly Deuteronomy seven, um, wipe everybody out sort of thing. Don't, don't marry with, don't marry them, et cetera. But that, that kind of, uh, language that's in Deuteronomy seven, it's particularly pronounced there, the notion of the ban or, uh, in the NRSV puts it the, the utterly destroy them. And, and there's some of it already in chapter two. This is uh this is difficult stuff for modern readers and modern biblical scholars to get their heads around and, and think through. Yeah. I, I don't know if we'll have a chance to come back to it uh, or talk about it in any detail now, but I read an article by Brent that's either coming out soon, or it might've just come out where he compares the Canaanites to Tolkien's orcs in oh, Lord of the okay. Rings. Really okay. fascinating. Uh, <laughs> so we just have to encourage people to look out for that article uh, when it comes yeah. out. Uh, so let's move to the kind of behind the text, historically oriented questions that we often encounter in the introduction to a commentary as we set out on this journey through Deuteronomy. So starting off, what are the options for the date of Deuteronomy and what contributes to those arguments? And maybe along the way, you might talk about how people understand Deuteronomy to be composed and who its author might or authors might be, because those are interrelated questions. Yeah, for sure. They're very interrelated. And, uh, you know, I think the, the best answer we can get, the most honest answer we can give to that is that uh, it probably stems from a bunch of different times. Uh, and that's because it seems to be not the work of a single hand. So there's there's variations, of course, in the in the in the uh, history of scholarship and fads that go in and out. But I think it's uh, fair to say and reasonable to say that the book 
has at least three audiences and those audiences can be sort of mapped onto three time periods. The time periods, um, may not always be connected to their, to the, to the writing, but at least two of them are. So, so one audience is the, uh, the, is the, the literary audience itself of Deuteronomy. And that's Moses about to die across the, the Jordan River in Moab, giving his final words to, to the people. And the joke here that I always make is that, you know, he's, 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 a, he knows he's going to die. He's known that since numbers. And he just says, well, I, I just have a few words I want to get in. Just <laughs> a couple things. You know, and after 34 chapters, Israel's like, God, if you don't kill him, we will. I mean, this is the longest sermon we've ever heard. <laughs> we should not be subjective. <laughs> so that's the literary audience. And of course, or just exile you know, us now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll take 28. We'll take Deuteronomy 28. Uh, this is like 8,000 points and two poems at the end. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, at some point in time, you know, pre-critically, there was a probably assumption that Moses did and author this book or this book came from the mosaic a figure or whatever that of course changed with the history and rise of modern biblical scholarship for a host of reasons that we don't need to get into, but, it, but that, but that leads to the other audiences. So there's at least um, another audience that can be imagined. And that is the monarchic audience. And here's the, the material comes from second Kings 22 and, and following where Josiah is a uh, king and they find a book of the law um, in the temple and they have it verified by the prophetess Hulda and she says this is legit and Josiah hears it and he is distraught and immediately uh, you know goes uh, into reform mode tries to reform uh, Judean religion at the time and what what King says about that about that uh, reform looks remarkably similar to what Deuteronomy would want Josiah to do, particularly around cult centralization, that one one worship site, which is Deuteronomy 12. So scholars for a long time, especially going back to Devetta, but even before Devetta, but in modern period, Devetta 1806 or something like that in his dissertation, said this book of the law that was found is in fact Deuteronomy or some sort of central part of Deuteronomy. So since 1800, scholars have thought, Ah, Deuteronomy has a monarchic audience, the Josianic period, seventh uh, century. So, does that mean that when it was found, the found needs to be in scare quotes? Hey, guess what we found, you know? Um, or is it was it really found in, in prior to that? But at least it suggests that some parts of the Book of Deuteronomy. Uh, maybe were composed or at least lively in the monarchic period. And then the third audience is the exilic audience. There's parts of the book that know the exile, that seem to know details about the exile, that know of it uh, not only as a possibility, but as is a fact, or at least seem to reveal that. Chapter four is, is one place, some of the material later in 28 and 29 and so forth. Um, this suggests that there's a, an exilic audience that also maybe have had a hand. So you got three audiences there, at least three um, time periods. The first one, the literary audience, could be entirely that, just literary. Uh, some people would still want to say that parts of the book of Deuteronomy are very early, particularly the poem in 32 or 33. Not all would agree with that, but some might be very early. Um, but then there's also definitely a monarchic kind of thing going on, uh, whether that's created, composed, finally just put down on, on scroll in the monarchic period. And then there's this exilic period as well. So 
pieces of Deuteronomy come from more than one period is the long is the short answer to, you know, my long right. rambling discussion. And, and another big question that comes up in all of this is this question of parallels to various treaties in the ancient yeah. Near East. And that's a complicated issue. But what's the general argument there and how does that work? Yeah, so the question is, in terms of the Assyrian period, um, you know, the Assyrian Empire, they, they seems that they made um, treaties and required loyalty oaths from the part of their vassals, especially Esarhaddon. And so the question is sort of, did did they make Judah do this? Um, and if so, you know, is there some sort of close relationship? And some people have argued there is a close relationship between what you see in these vassal treaties of Esarhaddon and some aspects of Deuteronomy. Um, that can include certain structures, flow of things, um, movement from topic to topic. Obviously, they're, they're written in different languages, but people have wondered if the scribes of Jerusalem might have known Akkadian, if one of these loyalty oaths was actually in Judah, um, if if uh, the kings would have been required to make such a loyalty oath. And if so, um, you know, what does it mean to have Deuteronomy look somewhat like those oaths and yet not, you know, swear fealty to the Assyrian empire, but to the Lord. And so is the structure and sort of similarity of Deuteronomy to treaty forms, and it's not just the Neo-Assyrian ones, but but it is those as well, it is the similarity of that not just sort of a literary convention, but is it also a kind of theological subversion? Uh, and that's that's one of the things. And as you said, well, there are people, really people divide on this. Um, I think my armchair impression is that more then not do think there's a, a relationship of some sort between the Neo-Assyrian uh, vassal treaties of, of Esarhaddon, particularly in Deuteronomy, but not all are convinced. Right. So what would be the significance of that for, in terms of the similarity of form for the questions of, let's say, dating Deuteronomy? Yeah, well, if, if, it's, if it's primarily the case that the Deuteronomy is dependent upon Neo-Assyrian forms, it means that it's decidedly got to be a first millennium document rather than a second millennium document. Mm -hmm. So that means that in terms of those three audiences, you have to focus on the second and third and take the mm -hmm. first one off the table. Right. The first okay. one becomes, that is the, the literary audience, becomes just that, a literary audience um, that is part of the fabula to use a, a term, you know, if the fabula of the book, um, the, its rhetorical setting or its literary presentation. But in terms of its actual composition, uh, that sort of genetic or, or close relationship between the Neo-Assyrian material would suggest that Deuteronomy is a product, not of the late second millennium with the time of Moses uh, and whatnot, but rather decidedly in the, in the first millennium and in, in, in the Assyrian period. But some will argue that there are also Hittite treaties from the late second millennium that are similar to Deuteronomy. I've even read articles that argue they're closer to Deuteronomy in some features than the Assyrian treaties. Right, right. And so they'll, those who think that Deuteronomy has it's at least there. sections yeah. that go back a long time would try and push on that parallel as a way to justify that. So this yeah, is a very right. debated issue. Uh, but I think what Brent's pointed us to is paying attention to the audiences that 
picked up this book and applied it. Maybe it was written for those time periods, but we can read it through the lens of those earlier readers and yeah. understand its significance. What are some of those post-exilic features that we see in Deuteronomy? Um, I think well, you had pointed to Deuteronomy 4 and some other uh, bits. Yeah, it's mostly awareness of the exile, um, that the exile is coming, and also the specificity of some of the details of of what will happen. So, and th there's a connection, a point of connection here with the Neo-Assyrian Neo uh, treaties, because one of the distinctions, and Will's exactly right, there's a lot of these treaties, kind of depends on who you ask. One collection from uh, Kitchen and Lawrence has a hundred some, uh, others don't number them quite that many, but there's, there's a number from both, uh, the Hittite material, which is first millennia, I mean, second millennium mostly, and, uh, the Neo-Syrian in the first millennium. But one of the differences that scholars have observed is that in the Assyrian treaties, they have a lot of curses. They're, they're, they're long on curse and brief on blessing. <laughs> and that's because, you know, they're, you know, they're the most effective war machine that the ancient Near East had ever seen. They don't need to bless anybody, but everybody should remember who they're dealing with. Don't tread on me is what the Assyrians said, you know. So um, 28 is, is an example of this in Deuteronomy because the blessings are, are great, but they're only about 14 verses. And then the rest of this very long chapter, all the way down to 68, um, is just curse. Curse central, curse Orama, lots of curses. <laughs> and all of the blessings that are mentioned in those first 14 verses are systematically undone. I mean, those, mm -hmm. um, they, they all go away in the face of disobedience and the specificity, for instance, of what will happen during the siege of, of the city. All, all that is, is very specific. And so scholars have, have thought this is probably betrays knowledge, specific knowledge of the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so those are the kind of hints um, that betray at least an exilic addition or exilic additions, glossing, redaction, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, but within the, within that play, I should also say, this relates to the structure of the book and what exactly was found or composed in the Josianic period. There's a lot of debate over that central core of stuff that people think is probably has some sort of coherence is the law material. Even there, you know, there's debate over what's earlier and what's later. And then these accretions that may have come along to, to, to preface the, the law code, you know, how early are those, you know, and, and where do they come from? Is chapter one through three very, very late? Uh, you know, what was it designed to do? These are the things that keep us in business as biblical scholars. <laughs> Most readers just go, yeah, I jumped from chapter three to chapter four because it was the next one. <laughs> now, why do you think Deuteronomy was written? What purpose might it serve or purposes perhaps? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that uh, it would vary, of course. I mean, if we think about rhetoric, um, we want to think about not only the rhetoric in terms of the 
persuasive nature of a text or intent of the text, but also in the new rhetoric, think about the rhetorical situation, right? What, who's, who's the, who are the, the addressees, um, that are being addressed by the rhetoric. And again, each of those three audiences we mentioned, and there could be a fourth, at least a fourth, which would be modern readers, right? Contemporary mm-hmm. readers. Each of those are different rhetorical situation. The book probably sounds a little different in each one, you know, for the literary audience, it really is. Moses is about to knock off he will not be present his definitive you know um shaping force i mean it's hard to overestimate how important moses is you know he won't be there so what can he give them instead he can give them the torah and he can give them a particularly useful form of torah and that's what deuteronomy is i mean you know some people say Christians say, you know, you only have one gospel. It is what you pick, Ronnie. You're, you're the expert on that. <laughs> John, right? You got to have John or some people are like, no, just Mark. You know, if you're only going to have one book of the Torah, you got, it's got to be Deuteronomy. I mean, that's it. You got to have Deuteronomy. It's got, it's got everything you need in it. And so that's, that, that's the function of Deuteronomy. That's meaning there is that you've got, this is the, these are the statutes and ordinances to observe in the life for your life in the land. Chapter 12, verse one. Um, for, for the monarchic audience, it suggests something else. It suggests we got to get our stuff together. We are going down the wrong path. And especially coming off of Manasseh, we got to get things together. Mm-hmm. And so just Josiah sees the writing on the wall, as it were, the writing on the scroll and, <laughs> and makes a significant course correction. And for the exilic audience, it's like, mm, this explains everything. You know, this is why we're here in exile, or this is why we experience the destruction of Jerusalem, whether we're in Babylon or not. This explains everything. So those it's the book sort of sounds differently in those three contexts, but each uh, way it, it shows how, how Deuteronomy resonates and has ability to speak to multiple contexts. Let's move from behind the text to the text itself and start with the name of the book. Why is Deuteronomy called Deuteronomy, and is it called anything else as well? Yeah, so um, in Hebrew, it's called Devarim, which means words, and the Pentateuch takes its, the books of the Pentateuch take their names from the first word or first significant word in the first verse, and Devarim is is uh, right there in one one. These are the words that Moses spoke. So the words is a good is a good word for the time, for the book of Deuteronomy because there's lots of words. In fact, more <laughs> reported speech in the book of Deuteronomy than any other book in the Torah. So the Lord speaks, Moses speaks, it's all quoted, um, but but lots of words. Um, so Devarim makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's also called, um, of course, in English via the Latin and the Greek, Deuteronomy, the second law. And that comes from a passage in, in chapter 17, the Greek uh, translation known as the Septuagint made a translation of this verse, um, 17, 18, uh, in the NRSV, it, it says he shall have a copy of this law written for him. It's, it's actually active in Hebrew. So he shall write a copy of this law himself. The king does this, but NRSV has the, scribes do it or something um in any event the copy of this law in hebrew was translated in greek as second law deuteros namas so the second law that's also a useful trans you know kind of name for the book designation for the book though because deuteronomy does represent law that comes before it canonically 
in the in the Bible and may, according to some scholars, intentionally revise and supplement prior law. So it is a second law. Um, those are the two primary work names mm-hmm. for the book. But a third one in, in rabbinic um, discussion is Sefer Tochahot, a book of hortatory instructions uh, or a book of reproofs or something. And that's a pretty good title for, for Deuteronomy too, because it is so full of exhortation and admonition. It is law, but it is very much preached law. I mean, if you're going to read law, this is kind of what you want to read because it's motivated, it's uh, paranetic, it's exhortative, it's exciting um, as, as far as law can be, I think. Right. So when we think about the genre of the book, people generally refer to it as law, as you just suggested. Does right. it fit in that genre or are there parts of it that push past that genre? Yeah, this is a kind of interesting question. I'd love you to hear your take, Will, because there's a lot of discussion in Hebrew Bible circles, it seems to me, on, on whether or not law is a good term or a bad term, like in general, you know, mm-hmm. Um I don't think it's a bad term in general. I mean, it, ha- it it has been or is in certain Christian circles, I suppose, especially really Protestant antinomian ones. But but law itself is not a, a bad word in my judgment. And so to call Deuteronomy law is not pejorative in, in my judgment. It, it could be pejorative in some people's judgment, uh, but certainly not mine. Conversely, when people have tried to say, oh no, Deuteronomy isn't law, it's something else. Von Rod was famous for this, Gerhard Von Rod. People have kind of accused him of, of, of misstepping as well, trying to sort of co-opt Deuteronomy <laughs> as, as a Protestant Christian as Von Rod was and, and make it not law in some sort of way. So it may help to think about the Hebrew term Torah, because that's, that's where that translation law comes from, or also instruction or teaching. And it's just important to remember for people who are reading um, Deuteronomy or any Pentateuchal legislation, Torah is really a macro genre descriptor. Um, it, 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 if you map it onto to the Pentateuch and you call it the Pentateuch Torah, well, then you know you're not dealing simply with something like the Georgia State Law Code or the Constitution of the United States um, per se. You're talking about something that includes stories, something that includes poems, something that includes uh, law, but but uh, just a bunch of, of interesting subgenres. So... I think Torah might be a better way to think about it. Is this is a book of of teaching, instruction, Torah? But yes, law for sure, law. There's law in there. There's no doubt about it. And um, again, but I think we should think in a positive way about law. Uh, in and maybe our uh, inability to do so in some circles reflects more about ourselves than about the, the term per se. Uh, Brent, as we embark on our journey through the Book of Deuteronomy, uh, we're wondering if you could. Kind of give, give us an orientation in terms of uh, what can we expect to find along the journey? What is the book's like major structure? Uh, what are like the major things that themes and whatever that and theological motifs that come up across across the book? Yeah, this this relates, I think, to the question of what to call the book or its genre, uh, because, you know, in the beginning, after the, we get this opening, a sort of setting of the stage in one, one through five. Uh, and verse five is really fascinating verse because it says beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law as follows. There's the colon. And then 
Do you get any explication of law? No, you get the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb saying you've stayed here too long. Time to move. You know, so it's fascinating because even their book, the book of Deuteronomy suggests that Torah is not just like, you know, straightforward do this or don't do this in terms of law or, or if this, then that in terms of, of case law, but rather Deuteronomic law is this, you know, again, a macro genre, a complex genre that includes story, narrative, convincing, preaching, rhetorical suasion, and law peppered into. But it takes Moses till, it takes a full 11 chapters before he finally gets to the statutes and ordinances that he says he's teaching. And he keeps saying, I'm teaching you statutes and ordinances. And Israel's like, we get it. Bring them. You know, we're, we're ready. Just a few more things. Did I tell you I'm teaching you statutes and ordinances? Yes, you did. Finally, in 12.1, we get the statutes and ordinances. So, you know, this has led some people to think about Deuteronomy as, you know, a kind of catechesis. The book calls itself Torah, but the book also calls itself or, or uses the term Barit, covenant, a lot. So is it a covenant? This kind of relates to the treaty structure that we talked about earlier. Is it Torah? And, and, is it both? And what does that mean? Um, and to just again tie into a previous question, Dennis Olson is, has said, oh, the book is really a catechesis. It's a catechetical document teaching Israel what it needs to know. Uh, Dean McBride wrote a famous essay that people referred to a lot that, no, it's a constitution. It's a kind of polity. Um, my own professor, Patrick Miller, tried to combine those and say it's a kind of catechetical constitution or constitutional catechesis, you know, and there, there's other options, too. But but the fact that the book begins in this way shows that the, the Deuteronomy is up to something when it comes to life in the land. It's getting to that. That's ultimately the point. How will Israel live in the land um, up to this point, according to the fabula of the Pentateuch. They've been dependent on the Lord's manna and the quail, and they've been wandering, but now they're going to be in the land of milk and honey. Finally, there'll be a Walmart on every corner. You know, <laughs> people will be wearing Versace. What is going to happen then? What do, how do we live then? And so that's what the law code is about. The central legal material about these statutes and ordinances, which update and revise prior legislation. But before that, Moses sort of sets the stage. He's a kind of consummate preacher convincing people why they need to do this and why they need to obey the Lord. So one through four is a kind of um, retrospective, which finally allows Moses to get to um, the giving of the Ten Commandments on in chapter five. So he begins later. He begins with the departure from Horeb and then in five flashbacks back to Sinai to give the Ten Commandments. And that starts in five. There's a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. And even these, Deuteronomy doesn't allow to pass unrevised. Uh, the Deuteronomic form of the Decalogue differs, not profoundly, but it does differ on some fine details from the version in Exodus 20. And that, again, shows Deuteronomy's interest and penchant for updating and revising. Um, after that... It seems that, uh, and this is the work of Norbert Lofink, the great Deuteronomy scholar, it seems that after chapter 5, with the delivery of the Ten Commandments, Moses gives a big, long, extended sermon on the First Commandment, hmm. uh, having no other gods. And that runs really 6 through 11. Uh, and so you get the, you know, kind of 
discussion in one through four of what got us to this point, then flashback to the Ten Commandments. And, hey, the first one is so important. Let me preach on that for a while. And then finally in 12, you get the statutes and ordinances, this sort of case law or regulatory law that's based on the Ten Commandments. In fact, according to many people, the the case law that we get in 12 through 26, 27, 28, that, that central area, is is actually keyed to the Ten Commandments in order. Uh, and so what would go with the uh, sole allegiance to the Lord, like the first commandment? Hmm, how about one worship site? One God, one worship site. So chapter 12, chapter 13, we get into this cult centralization stuff. Um, and then after the this central law material, we get a conclusion with a kind of a ceremony of um, agreement it's in 27, followed by this big discussion of blessings and curses. That's 28. And that brings us to the last part of the book, which is very intriguing because chapter 29, 1 in English, uh, NRSV reads, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant that he had made with mm-hmm. them. So that's a fascinating verse. Mm. It's 29.1 in English, but it's 28.69 in Hebrew, in the Hebrew versification. So does this kind of, is this a subscript to everything that came before, or is it an introduction to what comes after? And scholars disagree about that. But if it does function as a superscription of what follows, we have another covenant now, a new covenant made in the land of Moab, and it is uh, slightly different. And that's 29 through 31. 32 is this uh, great song of the Torah, uh, which we should talk about more, that Moses sings to the people to help them once they go into exile. And 33, Moses' last words to the children of Israel are his blessing, another poem. And 34 recounts his death. So that's, that's the book, kind of, it really... Fast forward, you know, 60 miles an hour. No, that was well done. So uh, along the way, you touched on some of these things, but what are the major theological themes that we're going to encounter as we walk through this book? And and what are some of the major interpretive issues and challenges? And we're just going to talk, I mean, there are lots of them, but what are some of the, the big ones that we'll encounter as we go through? Well, you know, I, again, yeah, there's so many, but I think, um, for me, the themes are really are related somehow to the to the form of the book um and so many years ago now i wrote a, an, an essay on the rhetoric of of deuteronomy um that was focused on its repetition and i think that i still think that that repetition is a key to understanding its its ultimate goal or its distinctive um voice. And in that piece, I, I tried to make the case that at the end of the day, the, the high degree of repetition in the book, and it really is a high degree of repetition, <laughs> makes you walk away at the end of the day from Deuteronomy, despite all the words, so many devarim, so many words, you really walk away with a handful of words. Keep, observe, do, carefully, today. I mean, that's kind of what you end up with. You end up with, I've got to be obedient. How, how should I be very, very carefully? And when should I be obedient? How about right about now? 
Um, and so this, this, the time frame of the book is this heavy moment of decision. Um, you know, now, 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 today, this day, and this kind of complement of verbs that, that the book uses, you know, keep, um, you know, shamar, do, asa, um, you know, do these things and then do them very, very carefully. The syntactical structure that, that he, that Deuteronomy often uses with a, a verb plus an infinitive construct that, that modifies it. Keep to do, carefully execute these things. What are these things? Well, commandments, mitzvot, hukimu mishpatim, that's the statutes and case law that dominates 12 through 26. These, and Torah as well. Keep the Torah. So these things are, um, you know, these are ways that Deuteronomy impresses itself upon us and produces at the end of the day something that it really wants, namely a reader that is carefully and studiously attentive to its words. If that reading of De Deuteronomic rhetoric is right, when you're finished with Deuteronomy, you say to yourself, I got to go back and reread it. I got to go back and reread it and get really precise on what those statutes, Torah, ordinances, judgments, et cetera, are because I have to keep them and I have to keep them very carefully and I have to do it right now. So that's, that's, that's one thing. And I think one more piece of that that ties into the covenantal question is all of that is happening in Deuteronomy also with this intriguing discussion of love, love mm -hmm. for God and God's love for Israel. And uh, that's given rise to a lot of discussion, including discussion with regard to these treaties. It was William Moran who wrote a famous essay that the, the love of God language in Deuteronomy is all just treaty language drawn from the Near East. This is the way the treaties work. And you were to love your Assyrian overlord. And Moran made a very compelling case that this is part and parcel of what's going on in Deuteronomy. But then Jacqueline Lapsley wrote an equally compelling piece many years later, in my judgment, where she argued that, yeah, but you know what? They use the term love. <laughs> and there's other <laughs> affective aspects of the book of Deuteronomy that suggest maybe they aren't just talking about like, you know, mechanical observance of some sort of treaty, but something more profound than that. Um, you know, loving God with, say, all your heart and all your soul and all your stuff, you know, to use six, five. <laughs> so I think Lapsley in my mind is a more compelling case. It doesn't obviate the Near Eastern treaty background, but it suggests that, you know, something more than just um, blind, simplistic obedience is going on here. That is how one loves God in Deuteronomy by being obedient. But that obedience is generated by emerges from a kind of affective core, I think, and that, again, is something one normally doesn't encounter in legislation proper, uh, love and stuff like that. Great. Uh, you know, speaking of love, we'll be talking to John Levinson later in this season, and he's written some really important stuff on how we think about love in Deuteronomy, which I think will be helpful as we that think That is exactly that right. And whatever John Levinson says, I agree with and defer to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, for, the, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's let's move on now to the world in front of the text, so to speak. So the reception of the book of Deuteronomy. How has Deuteronomy been received? And let's start with its significance in the canon. What is the significance of where Deuteronomy has been placed in the canon of the Hebrew Bible? Right. Well, 
I mean, in terms of its current canonical position, which is the only canonical position that it's ever occupied, it's, it's the final and climactic book of the Torah. That makes a lot of sense, of course, because um, it uh, concludes with Moses' death. So the book comes at the end of the Torah. It's, the, it's this definitive climactic phrase or, or statement. It's re-articulating so much of what's gone before, um, really all the way back to Exodus, um, but with its mention of the ancestors and God's choice of the ancestors and love of the ancestors, it, it evokes still earlier material from Genesis. But but the book is the climactic end point. It's the end of the beginning, you might say. Um, so this is the way to end on a high point. You 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 summarize all of the four books of the Torah and you represent it in a suasive, highly memorable and uh, digestible form that you can walk away with a handful of verbs and a handful of objects and whatnot. And you also end with a, with a poem 32 that captures the Torah in song form. That is a very huge, um, I think in my mind, important observation because music sticks with us. It gets into our heads, little earworms. And, um, when, when Moses is, is, receives this song from the Lord in 31, it's said to be the song of Torah and that it will save Israel. It will help Israel when it's, when it finds itself in exile. So that when all is lost, um, they'll have this song. And this song is not full of a bunch of minor rules or whatever, but instead tells this sort of poetic account, this poetic story of who God is and who Israel is and how they're uh, connected and conjoined in um, ultimately in, in, in love and, and obedience. So that end of the beginning is an important part. The other thing, though, that Deuteronomy does is pivots pivots to what follows. And so it's not only the end, the, the, the end of the beginning, it's the beginning of the end. And that's intriguing because Deuteronomy sets this benchmark for all that follows, particularly Joshua through Kings. And when we get to the monarchy, we'll see, and even before that, we'll see uh, Israel falling short of the Deuteronomic ideal. And that is probably by design in terms of the literary composition of that material. But what it suggests is that Deuteronomy sets a standard that is unable to, to, to achieve, at least on the basis of these books. Only few, few people stand out. Few people stand out. You know, Joshua, high point. Josiah, a real high point. Josiah is the only person in the Bible that instantiates the Shema, the, the loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. He does it according to, to Second Kings. Um, everybody else, not so much, you know, David, no, <laughs> not even David <laughs> Hezekiah, notable mention, honorable mention for sure. He's good. Josiah, the best. And it's all because of the Deuteronomic ideal. So beginning of the end of the beginning in terms of closing down the Pentateuch, but Deuteronomy is also the, the beginning of the end in terms of the monarchic way or the post mosaic way of being in the world. That's not adequately Torah centric. Um, and so that's that's really what's important, I think, about the canonical placement. And then finally, as we mentioned before, you know, Deuteronomy's, you know, kind of cadences, its emphases, they, they resonate with other writers of Scripture, whether positively, like what people think might be Deuteronomic additions or redactions to the book of Jeremiah, or negatively when when 
um, other writers are sort of engaging Deuteronomy and maybe problematizing it. You know, <laughs> that might be the case with Job, maybe parts of Ecclesiastes, maybe parts of Ezekiel. Um, let's shift a little bit to thinking about how uh, Jews and Christians, let's say throughout the ages, have interpreted and grappled with the book of Deuteronomy. Are there particular ways that they've grappled uh, with Deuteronomy that you think are particularly noteworthy and or maybe they can illuminate ways in which we struggle with inter- you know, contemporary issues? Yeah, I think in terms, if we're thinking about especially with an eye on the contemporary thing, I think maybe two issues jump out to me. I mean, one would be, um, is this covenantal matrix, um, does it really have any integrity anymore? You know, I remember a conversation with my colleagues, Steve Kraftcheck, and we were talking about Deuteronomy and whatnot. And, and he made a comment that I'll always remember because I think it's quite right where he suggested to me, he said, you know, maybe the problem with interpreting Deuteronomy now is that people are really way more in the Job camp than they are in the Deuteronomy camp. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not that, you know, Deuteronomy dominates the Bible in, in lots of ways. It's like the central stream of the current, if you will. But that really isn't the case anymore. You know, the dominant stream <laughs> is is the Jobin stream, stream maybe, you know, the, the mm-hmm. suffering and the railing against injustice, including divine uh, inscrutability, et cetera. I mean, people are more with Kohelet and Job, I think, than they are with Deuteronomy, culturally maybe. Into, and so that's that's a real issue. Does Deuteronomy make sense anymore to people. Um, and how so I think one of the ways to go about handling that. And I hear, I refer to pe- work people like Dennis Olson is to think about that Moab covenant. Um, because the Moab covenant, if that is really in addition to, uh, then 29 and following is a new thing that has to sort of be grappled with. And it still has plenty of covenantal conditionality. Um, but at the end of 28, you're like, man, there is no hope. You know what I mean? You, we, we <laughs> hear all these statutes and ordinances and then it doesn't matter. It's curse, curse, curse. It's a little bit of blessing and a lot of curse, <laughs> curse, curse. And it, we just, does Deuteronomy crash on the, on its own rocks of covenantal obedience and disobedience? That's kind of the real question. Then along comes 29. You know, and 29 and following still have conditionality. They still have all that built in. But there's there's some differences that people like Olson have identified. And one seems to be greater agency on the part of the deity. So in chapter 10, for instance, there's this imperative where, oh, you must circumcise your heart. And it's an imperative circumcise. Mm-hmm. So, so take that mark of the covenant internally. It's no longer external. It's no longer just for the male body, but it's now internal to to all people on the heart, you know, and it's an imperative. Do it. Well, in the Moab covenant, it's like, "Mm, I guess you can't do it. So the Lord your God will do it for you. (laughs) And that's in chapter 30, verse six, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. I mean, that's great, right? God will do it for you. And not only for you, but for your kids and, and the descendants. And then the result, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you will live. Ah, so that God will actually make it so that you, you know, can fulfill the Shema. And so that increased agency of, of, of act, the gracious act of God is is present, maybe even more so 
in uh, the Moab Covenant. I think is that, that why you, is that why you think it ends? Sorry, with with thirty three that you have all these blessings right now p- piled up. It's kind of anticipating yeah. that this kind of intervention yeah. of some in some way. I think so. And even, and I mean, that's, def, that's Moses's last words for sure. Mm-hmm. But the last words of God in Deuteronomy to, to Israel, really 32. And that recounts the, this kind of, you know, complicated relationship. Oh, the, the rock, his work is perfect, but God had degenerate children. It goes through that. But, but somehow in that poem, Israel clings to God and God ends up clinging right back to Israel. And they both end up being sort of incomparable um, and ending in praise of God. So that too, I mean, is, is intriguing because in 31, when, Mo, when, when God's saying to Moses, teach, teach the people this song because they're all going to go astray. I mean, think about it. Wait a minute. I just, I just gave, you know, how many chapters of instruction to keep them from going astray. And now you're saying they're going to go astray. They go astray. And, but don't worry that this song is going to help them. It's got a funky beat. They're not going to forget it. And then right when they need it, you know, the, the baseline is going to kick in. They're going to sing the song and all will be saved, you know? So I think that that helps this contemporary problem a little bit. It shows that this facile int- understanding of, of Deuteronomy as, you know, quid pro quo, pro quo isn't exactly quite right. It's, it's thicker than that. The covenant is thicker than that. So already things that happen later with say, you know, dissident voices, whether it's Job or they're already sort of working a little bit in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is not as stupid as somebody might think it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's better. Great. Well, Brett, we're really grateful for you standing up on the mountain, so to speak, and looking into the <laughs> promised land of Deuteronomy, which is kind of reversing what Deuteronomy is doing here. I will never uh, get there is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to leave you here at the introduction and dive into the book ourselves with other guests. So I guess that is true. Um, uh, you've made us so excited about this journey that we're heading out on. Uh, the one last question that we want to ask you, and you're familiar with this, is for a blurb, something that you might recommend to our guests your blurb from last season was one of my favorite horse mats uh horse mats baby i've actually recently recommended them to a friend i was like you got to get some horse mats for for this gym that you're putting in your house so what recommendation do you have for us today i i'm glad you asked i was i kind of expecting this so i brought i brought it with me actually you've heard of soap and you've heard of loofahs but have you heard of loofah soap? And this will change your life. This is my favorite, Baudelaire loofah soap made with seaweed, exfoliating soap. I'm telling you, it's going to change your life. And I just want to point out the box could not be more true. Crafted by artisans, cherished by you. So I would say that would be that, that my recent discovery... Uh, of this this particular brand of exfoliating soap. Well, quite, quite will, you, will, you, will you open the box for us? I'd oh, like yes. to see, I mean, I'd like should, to see what so it looks arom- like. It's so aromatic, too. You should just smell how great it is. It's just this turned into a QVC episode. <laughs> yeah, if I can get it open. How can I get it open? Oh, here it is. It's, there you go. Oh, look. Jet, voila. Six in a package. Oh, okay. Six in a package. Okay. Individually wrapped. Individually okay. wrapped and <laughs> Very aromatic, even through the plastic. So Somewhat it's green because it's, it's made with it's, seaweed. It's hard or it's soft. 
It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. But but it's uh it, I don't know. I you have to experience it. <laughs> Baudelaire, I I that's that's all I can say. I don't want to get you know, I do have okay. some, you know, agreements with other companies, so I shouldn't say too much. But that and, and if I could say one more, I wanna say the other thing that's transformed my life is the daily office book. For those who, who want to read the daily office, there's so many books you have to hold. Ah, but the daily office book combines all of them in one volume and then you don't have to flip back and forth it's all right there so that's a, a life hack for the body as it were and for the soul i perfect. thought i could sneak two in there if that's all right perfect let me put in a quick blurb uh for in parallel your podcast oh, yeah. on poetry have you done an episode on deuteronomy 32 no, I haven't, but that's a good idea. I, I, yeah. I should do that. We're, we're thinking about the second season. The first season has six episodes. The seventh one is, is soon to drop, I think. And, but then we're going to do a second season. I should, I should work in 32. Yeah. What I love about that podcast, it's like if you could combine biblical scholarship and smooth jazz. This is what that would get. <laughs> it's I fantastic. love that. I, that. That is, thank you, Will. That's the highest compliment pretty much anyone has paid me. And I, I can now retire safely on Mount Pisgah, not in the Holy, not, not in the promised land because I've, I've seen it. I've seen what a, a jazz, smooth jazz DJ career might have been for me. And I am content. Well, thanks, Brent, for introducing us to Deuteronomy as we begin our journey through the book. Uh, if you enjoy this orientation to Deuteronomy, uh, you can find the guest list of everyone who's going to be guiding us on the different uh, passages in Deuteronomy on our website at thetwotestaments.com. There you can subscribe uh, and you can find us wherever you download and listen to podcasts. And while you're there, if you uh, wouldn't mind... Uh, to give us a, your best five-star rating. I we think really blessings may come. That's right. No, I'm not, wait, we, I don't know if we can promise curses if they don't, but you know that would be a, an act of covenant loyalty yes, that's uh, right. to the show. 100%. Or a regular 100. listener. Yeah. I, I suppose we maximize the curses for anything under five stars. <laughs> well, thanks again, Brent, and thank you for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.